Nothing Never Happens, and part two of our conversation with Ira Shore on critical pedagogy questioning the status quo. I'm Tina Pippin, your host. We've been talking with Ira about how to do critical pedagogy in the neoliberal capitalist university. So Ira, would you talk more about the institutional constraints and the creative possibilities you've encountered in creating liberatory classrooms? Okay, so uh, because most of our educators that we're addressing today are in formal education, they're institutionally based, they're institutional officers and have uh, descending levels of authority depending on age and their gender and their color and so on. Um, they're going to have uh, um, uh, the more scrutiny and feel less confident in exerting their, exerting their authority. So uh, first thing is that um, we have to not uh, allow ourselves to get isolated, that we have to seek allies who are willing to take risks along with us. Mm-hmm. And so uh, an, an, an isolated teacher who's uh, the lone uh, uh, individual questioning the status quo is more vulnerable and more easily uh, thrown out, thrown out of the pack. So that we have to organize a group of people quietly who are willing to try this by this with us, and there's always more uh, strength and more security. So what Paula Perry said, the the goal of critical pedagogy is not to get fired. <laughs> the goal yeah. of pedagogy is to make a difference. So we have to try to engineer uh, as long as uh, our tenure there as long as possible, so that we can try to try to make a difference. So he said that we have to try to like uh, face our the fears and the limits that we live with, face it very honestly and openly, look in the mirror, mm-hmm. talk to ourselves about how much fear can we live with and how much risk are we willing to take. And not to be defensive about it or ashamed of it, but that when we question the status quo, Paulo Ferry thought you have to expect to be punished. And sometimes uh, the punishment comes soon, sometimes it comes later, sometimes it's a little, sometimes it's a, a lot, but that this goes with the territory of questioning the status quo and uh, trying to democratize a, a system that is anti-democratic and that is very elitist and organized hierarchically. That I can't vote college president, and so on. All right. So that's the that's the first uh, situation that we have to sort of like find colleagues to work with and uh, and accept that a certain level of fear and risk, and then uh, to figure out, given this this class, uh, what can we do in this in uh, in this corner. Let's talk more about what we can do, those of us who are interested in critical pedagogy and its practices in the classroom, uh, what we can do in terms of reading different situations and the risk factors associated with it. Could you give some specific classroom examples of the risk? Uh, uh, Ferry also said that um uh, critical pedagogy is not a, a uniform practice uh, with uh, uniform outcomes. That is, that depending on the uh, limit 
in the openings in any situation, not so far, depending on how open a situation happens to, happens to be. So I've been able to take it uh, uh, perhaps farther because of my age and my skin color and so on and so on. Yeah. And, and so I was able to experiment with this uh, practice of negotiating the syllabus and sharing, sharing power. So what I tried to do with the start of every class is uh, present proposals around grading plans or grading contracts. And I presented to the class and I, I begin this, uh, each class with a conversation which I call the, um, uh, uh, the um, constitutional construction of the, uh, of the governance of the classroom. They're like, okay, what are the rules that we're going to follow here? And so I make certain proposals, and then I open the floor for debate and discussion, and we talk them over and so on. But uh, I also uh, don't ask—I ask students to take home my proposals and any amendments and so on, and think about it for a week because this is such an unfamiliar practice for students yeah. that they're basically overwhelmed, confused, and defensive, and not sure what the teacher has in mind and fearful that I'm—they're uh, going to get it wrong or I'm going to hmm. manipulate them or something. So I, I don't I, I try to extend the time for them to get used to this practice and to come back in a week and the week after and discuss it further and, and then encourage people to stand up and to make uh, refinements, amendments, proposals, alternate suggestions for how uh, the grading uh, the rules should work and so on. And then I, I repeat the suggestions people make in the class and I ask if other people have uh, comments on it. Uh, to see who wants to talk on it, I encourage folks to talk, and, and eventually, if uh, we talk it out, then I call for a vote among the class on how uh, how many people support this proposal made by any student. And I announce that uh, you know a majority proposal, uh, the majority of class has to support whatever. And uh, sometimes there are proposals made that I simply can't manage because I have like 80 students in three very large writing classes. And sometimes the bookkeeping that will be required, they, they, they don't want to have this deadline or that limit or that paper or whatever. And I say, look, I can't, I'm, I can't manage the bookkeeping of uh, such, yeah. a, such a diverse. So I try to propose something uh, mm -hmm. else. In, in, so I'm also allowed to enter the conversation because I have observed the democratic discipline of proposing that we negotiate the syllabus. I'm sharing authority which then authorizes me to join the dialogue because I'm honoring a democratic discipline of the teacher. So then I'm allowed to say, oh, look, I can't live with this, and uh, this doesn't seem uh, constructive because. And I explain my position to, to the students and uh, try to uh, represent myself as like a part of the situation, whatever, and uh, with my own limits as the institutional officer that uh, this isn't non-formal education in a community or a work site. This is formal education inside a, uh, a very structured and um, repressive institution that we're, we're trying to engineer uh, a democratic um, experience in and so on. All right, and then eventually we, we agree on this document and so on, and then uh, I, I manage the... Um, uh, the, uh, the the rules that we have, and I inform students how things are going during semester, and periodically I take votes to see if uh, people are still standing behind them, and so on and so on. 
That's very interesting, Ira, but what changes have you seen over time uh, in critical pedagogy and student responses to critical pedagogical practices in the classroom? Here's, here's my experience that decade by decade uh, that uh, students are, are, um, are feeling more vulnerable and uh, more exhausted and uh, less open to experimentation because the, uh, the institution has become more oppressive. It's much harder for them to get the classes they need to graduate. It's much harder for them to afford the rising tuition that comes every year. We, yeah. When I arrived 45 years ago, we were tuition-free and open admissions. We fought, mm. we fought tremendously for five years to defend that, and we lost that battle, which was a, a terrible defeat. But mm. here we are in the aftermath now, and the students now have to pay increasing tuition and the budget cuts are constantly cutting uh, the classes they need to graduate on time and so on and so on. And the institution is having a, a, an increasingly hostile profile against the students, which make them angrier and angrier, more uncertain in the classroom. And uh, that powers outside, which is why I say that the classroom cannot be defended from the inside. Yeah. So I have to be outside. Uh, fighting against these policies that are hostile to me and the and the the students. So uh, Paolo Ferri uh, said that uh, you know that it's not clear that this critical pedagogy we're interested in, you know, the the social justice pedagogy for democracy, equality, ecology, and peace, that it can be implemented in every in every place. Okay, given what you're saying just now, then where are the spaces for critical pedagogy? What would Freire say to us in this particular time? And in other words, how can his time speak to ours? And then what Paulo Freire did when he took his literacy teams to begin their investigations in the communities, he, met, he approached the authorities in those areas and uh, reached an agreement with them that they're about you know, what, what they intend, that, that they, they're going to do this and try this and so on, and they... they they have to have the authorities um, on on board uh, on board with them now. But look, this is something to remember. Yeah, that moment when Paulo was inventing this critical pedagogy, this problem-posing dialogue for uh, adult illiterates in in uh, factories and communities, this was a pre-revolutionary moment in Brazil that was uh, stopped by the military coup of April first, nineteen sixty-four that was assisted by the United States, and the, uh, the democratic forces that Paulo Freire were part of were moving towards power, uh, to gaining more power. And in that environment, there, there were authorities all over the place who were willing to um, coordinate or to coalesce with the democratic forces and welcome uh, a literacy education for uh, democracy and empowerment, because the goal then was uh, to educate as many illiterate adults as possible so they could qualify to vote because there was a literacy requirement at that time uh, that prevented maybe 20 million Brazilian adults from voting, and their, their absence from the polls guaranteed right-wing party uh, majorities each election. So Paulo Freire was now part of a, a very large democratic coalition that wanted the, the vast majority of Brazilians franchise, and they needed literacy, so there were local governments, uh, democratic uh, gover governors and so on, who 
would allow, and so and invited this, and so on. So yeah. Now, now we have to remember. We have to ask ourselves: What's the power? What's the the archaeology of power? That's how Paulo Freire called it. What's the archaeology of authority or power in any place we work? And what kind of opening? Uh, what kind of opening uh, is there? And how do we engineer a larger opening than is apparent apparent at the at the be at the beginning? So we understand in critical pedagogy that some places are more restricted, is in some places are more open. To um, uh, critical questions or critical teaching than others. So here's what Freire said: said that at the bottom, at the at the far end of restriction, where we place a lot of restriction, that uh, the the lowest common denominator or the lowest that the practice we should entertain there is to develop critical capacity amongst the students for whom uh, critical teaching is uh, restricted or not uh, not available. Mm -hmm. That is, we should invite the students to make contact with the uh, with the uh, critical conditions of their society, the larger connections of their everyday life, with the cultural conditions and and uh, power structures around them, and pose questions that uh, drew them into that discussion that were legible, meaningful, inspiring, and um, proposed in, in in a way that made sense made sense to them. They equaled that uh, the the poking um, uh, critical capacity when other more radical interventions did not seem possible in our in our uh, in our classroom. So it matters. Paul Freire saw critical pedagogy as a spectrum of practices. Mm -hmm. That I was asked at uh, one session about a month ago. I was asked. To uh, the students at elite universities need liberation. Okay, <laughs> that was a question some of them asked. Okay, uh, because they, you know, they come from the wealthiest families. They're at the most luxurious campuses. They have the most uh, resources invested in their development. They have uh, portfolios at the at the college that uh, provide extras. They bring all the famous people to campus. They put on concerts. They have this and they have that. And uh, they can—they don't have to work, and they can take time off for free internships and <laughs> develop themselves even more, and so on and so on. Yeah. So the these students, because they have all these elite, elite advantages, okay, and so on. So uh, my thought is this: that um, we all live in the same society, and that uh, the society is structured that a minority at the top, a one percent, get a lot, and the rest of the folks get less. And so on. Everybody at the top is implicated in equality and this injustice, and that means that yes, elite students need liberation because they're participating in that society and they're being prepared to continue as the policymakers and the powers, the future powers of the this unjust and unequality. So we can't leave them alone because they they're so well dressed and all their teeth are beautiful. <laughs> From all the dental yeah. work their parents can go on, and because they 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 don't have to miss class because the boss won't give them time off, and so on and so on. And yes, they they have to be presented with their responsibilities in in, in an unjust world, just like everybody else. Yeah, thank you for that, um, and setting the context for today. Uh, so, um, and so in ways, critical pedagogy. Uh, on this spectrum, um, even though there are 
it seems to me from my from my point of view kind of few and far between those who are very serious about this kind of pedagogical theory whether it be you know feminist queer pedagogies disability pedagogies um womanist pedagogies uh whatever um uh so i'd like to ask you um you know what what today would you suggest um especially not just young scholars, but old scholars too, or seasoned scholars. Um, what do we need to be reading and thinking about uh, in terms of, um, you know, pedagogical theories today? And, um, you know, what, what would you recommend for teachers who are considering being reflective teachers and haven't um, done a lot of of work in this, they may be pre-tenure. It you know might be a little risky for them, but they're they're wanting to expand their um, pedagogical library. So uh, also, you know, what's informing your teaching at this moment? What kind of new thing um, has uh, sparked you and your ideas in the classroom? Yes. Okay. Uh, for K twelve teachers, it's absolutely essential. Mm -hmm. So that uh, I invite folks to look into Re Rethinking Schools Project, which has been underway for 30 years and yeah. published an enormous amount of useful materials about critical classroom practice. So we have a tremendous treasury there of oh, classroom absolutely. practice. Absolutely. And also that there are every year conferences, uh, social justice education conferences that Rethinking Schools participates in. but. There are, there are uh, independent groups in Chicago and uh, on, in the Pacific Northwest and in California and in New York City. The movement of uh, radical education city is very active uh, with uh, weekend uh, curriculum activities and so on. So that uh, that in addition to the publications that we go online and find these other groups, bring people together three or four times a year. It's very important. Go to the conferences. But it's very easy to feel alone, and you learn a lot there, and meet other folks who feel like uh, you know this, this is this is a good way, good way to go. In addition, the Zen Education Project is a very powerful uh, operation that, that provides a lot of uh, classroom practice. So, without doubt, those those two resources should be at the um, at the top of uh, any K twelve uh, uh, teachers um, teachers uh, list. For uh, high, higher education uh, teachers, um, what uh, because we're uh, so discipline-centered, that is, uh, we, yeah. we have uh, degrees in sociology or biology or anthropology or uh, English or something like that, um, uh, it's, it's the first thing that matters is to, uh, is to um, meet with other teachers in our discipline, other professors and scholars and college teachers in our discipline who are interested in critical uh, questions so that we begin to report our practices to each other and solicit advice and support for, for how to move this move this practice along. So most of the professional conferences that take place do have radical caucuses in them. I know mm -hmm. the, the, the uh, what's called the four C's, the Conference on College Composition and Communication that yeah. meets uh, once a year. It's a very large conference, and, and it has, uh, I started there uh, with some other folks, a, a working class a special interest group in the 1990s that meets to discuss these questions and reports online and so on and so on. They're having a meeting in 
uh, Portland in um, this month, and about I think it's next week, and so on. And they're meeting, and they're having two two sessions, and so on. I, I would definitely invite young uh, college uh, educators to go to their professional conferences and spend the day walking around, finding who, who which folks are already holding meetings about uh, critical teaching, which folks are, are raise those questions in larger meetings. And walk up to them and say, hello, my name is so-and-so, I teach here, and why don't we go have coffee and talk about, well, I really like your question, whatever. That's what I did, for, and that's what a lot of folks do. So, And that's the way to make uh, contacts and networks and um, to discover what resources what uh, resources uh, they're using for uh, college teachers. There's the, the Radical Teacher magazine that uh, publishes a lot oh, yeah. of very useful a lot of very useful um, um, materials and so on. Uh, so I, I think that that's, if I was a young teacher starting out, that's what I would do. Uh, K-12 folks, I, I, I oh, uh, rethinking schools and there's an education project and radical teacher and so on. I still continue to follow them and write when I can and so on uh, for them. And they, they're only, they've only grown more useful over, over the years and so on. Also, if folks have questions, they can uh, email me. Uh, okay. My email is irashore123, I-R-A-S-H-O-R-123 at gmail.com. And um, send me questions, send me thoughts, uh, whatever. I've just uh, received an email yesterday from somebody who's putting together a, um, a critical pedagogy uh, panel at the MLA next Christmas in New York and wants to know if I'll join them and so on. Just arrived yesterday. So, of course, I'll say yes and uh, go there and meet other folks and uh, say the things that I've been uh, saying here and the report, you know, in a little more detail, my, my practice, my classroom practice, as they, they want to know uh, in these times of, like, uh, uh, right-wing populism and a Trump insurgency, uh, what, yeah. do, what, what can English teachers do in the classroom that uh, pushes back? Okay, very good question. So somebody sent me an email asking me to join their panel. Good, that's good. Okay, if you have a panel, send me an email. I'll try to get there. Okay, and <laughs> if I can be of help, happy, um, and so on. Uh, so that's to find each other and uh, build from the build from the bottom up. And we're not inventing the wheel because some very consequential operations already exist that we we can locate. I was in New York City. I would no question I would join the movement of radical educators who meet every Sunday. And then also every Sunday, there's also a meeting of a new group in CUNY that want to fight for the return of free tuition. We have that here. Mm. Yeah. I recommend the junior junior colleagues. So uh, does that help? Does that answer the question? Oh, it's, uh, it's what, wonderful. What yes, because there are many fronts to uh, get engaged, especially around coalition building. And as you said, not being isolated. Um, and in it, uh, the uh, the progressive forces and the uh, insurgents now, um, Democratic Party uh, all the way to the left, uh, have a very limited view of education policy. Uh, and the Democratic Party has done terrible damage to public education over the last 20 years or more. And uh, we'll be recovering from that damage in K-12 and higher education for years to, years to come. So we have to now campaign among uh, folks who are uh, uh, alert to opposition, involved in opposition. We have to campaign with them 
about what education policy for democracy means, because the, uh, we we have a very very uh, meager a very meager uh, discussion underway in the public sector. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you very much, Ira, for talking to us about these really important things, because I think this uh, podcast is one way we can begin to build those coalitions. It's my hope that we can get people who are interested in these things um, to not feel so alone and to feel like there is um, a history, you know, with uh, Freire's literacy groups and before that or around the same time, the citizenship schools. Um, in the southern United States and, you know, all over the globe, this kind of thing has been happening. And it happens in smaller ways in our formal education in classes. Um, and so uh, I'm very grateful to you for being here for the inaugural podcast. Oh. And folks should contact me and uh, I do, you know, I'm happy to do uh, a pr uh, critical teaching practice workshop to demonstrate you know, how I scaffold and how I sequence events in a, in a specific setting, not because you should copy that, but just to give an yeah. example mm -hmm. of what one critic teacher does in one situation so you can just get a feel for how this works, that it's not just, I don't, uh, I don't deliver speeches about liberation and so on and so on, that it has to be a practice that uh, over a long period of time moves us into a, a different way of seeing the world. Yes, and our and our students are often the ones with the vision to make those next yes. steps, uh, things that we can't see. And I don't know if you remember, you came to Agnes Scott, oh, some years ago, maybe 10 years ago, uh, our I education remember. department had you. Yes, and you very graciously met with uh, our department, religious studies department. Oh. Uh, we had a group yeah. of about 20 students there. Um, to talk to, kind. Yeah, well, you yeah. talked to us about um, our departmental process of trying to do the Freirean democratic model uh, in a different structure, which is a department structure. And uh, we're still um, struggling within, you know, the institutional boundaries that you defined so well in this podcast. Uh, but we are continuing to have monthly department meetings where we rotate who chairs the meeting. We make curricular decisions as a group. Um, mm -hmm. But we're continually, you know, up against the, the boundaries and the power structure of the institution that says, well, um, you know, department meetings are only for faculty. That's, all, that's the way it's always been done. And um, you know, some shock and <laughs> surprise when we say that students chair meetings and probably do a better job than most faculty because they're That's serious good. and prepared, you know. Um, but we decide on agenda, we decide on difficult issues together. Um, and yeah, so I think we're the only ones doing it and it may be short-lived, but we're living yeah. in the moment. <laughs> And listen, please keep in mind that when, you know, like uh, 45 years ago when I started this, uh, mass movements were in the field and the status quo was on the defensive. Mass movements for democracy and equality were on the offensive. That larger cultural setting 
institutions start to backpedal and we're able to, to uh, demand more and do more. In a moment like this, when the mass movements are small and divided, and when the, uh, the, uh, there's been a, a restoration of authority and consolidation at the top, uh, it's much harder to, to, find, uh, to find the space. And that what we're doing, we're, we're setting, planting the seeds to, because all of this that we're struggling with now will become easier more and uh, uh, more widespread as, as movements grow uh, for um, uh, the social justice. Mm -hmm. Well, let's hope. <laughs> let's, let's end on a moment of hope. Uh, well, thank so nice you, Ira. Thanks for calling. I appreciate it. This concludes our interview with Ira Shore on critical pedagogy in democratic education and the status quo. I'm your host, Tina Pippin. The show is Nothing Never Happens. Our music theme was composed by Aviva and the Flying Penguins, orchestrated, arranged, and performed for podcast by Lance Eric Hagen. Our producer, is Calvin Bergamy. Our audio engineer is China Wilson. Tune in next time for another episode of Nothing Never Happens. Mm -hmm.